Okay, so, so uh, um, I think my kids have got to a particular age where when we go on holiday, they can um, uh, occupy themselves a little bit. And so I got, to, I got to read some books for the first time on holiday for absolutely years. And one of the books that I read has had a profound impact on my life. It was a book called More by Simon Ponsonby. And if ever you buy a book ever in your life again, you would do really well to consider that book. But at the very start of the book, he gives this story. He's talking about when he was on holiday in France, he'd hired a little holiday cottage, and he'd gone away specifically trying to hear from God, you know, specifically saying, Lord, I'm here, I'm on holiday with my family, I want to hear from you. And as they're away, uh, just one afternoon, he was lying on his bed praying, and uh, he hears a cry from the garden. And so he kind of rushes out into the garden where his wife and kids are standing around the pool, the, the fish pond at the end of the garden. And uh, they're all just kind of staring into the fish pond. And he's thinking, I wonder what's going on here. And as he gets closer, what he's, the, the, the thing that he finds is that uh, because it's the summer and it's been a really, really hot summer, the level of the pool has gone down. And because of that, there are some areas of the pond that aren't really deep enough for the fish. And, and, and they've got not just those little goldfish, but what do you call it? Is it like koi carp or something like that? Just massive fish in there. And uh, what they're all staring and looking at is, is there's one particular fish that's grounded itself in a bit of shallow water, and it's kind of stuck in the gravel, and it can't really move anywhere. And so they're all just going, ah, oh, ah, oh, help, help, and they've called him to come in. And so he comes along, and he looks at it, and then he gets a stick from somewhere, and he just starts poking at this fish just trying to get it to move and, and trying to push it off the gravel, but it, it just seems to make the matter worse. And so uh, then he has a brainwave, and he goes away for a little while, and a minute later he comes back, and in one hand he's got a watering can, and in the other hand he's got a dustbin lid. And what he does is he waters this fish with the watering can for a little while until it, you can see it kind of re, re, being brought back to life, not resurrected, but, you know, kind of... <laughs> Uh, uh, flapping a little bit and then he kind of pushes this fish which weighs about 10 pounds onto the um, up, upturned dustbin lid and then he lifts up the dustbin lid and he carries it across like a kind of Olympic shot putter or something like that carries it across to a deeper part of the fish pond and then just drops it in like that and for a minute they're just you know a moment they're just staring at the water just trying to see what's going to happen and then eventually the fish just swims away you're probably wondering what the point is of all of that. Listen what he says about that moment. He says, Almost immediately, as we headed back to the cottage, I sensed the Lord speaking to me. The church is like that carp, mature, distinguished, and impressive. She's lived long, fought hard, eaten well, but she's been, she has left or been lured out of the deep waters, and she's stuck in the mud, and suffocating. Occasional momentary relief from the odd spiritual watering can't save her. Her only hope is to get back to the deep water. And then he goes on to say, what's required is not a stick or the odd sprinkling of a renewal meeting or conference to give superficial relief, but a sustained permanent immersion in the deep end. And I mean, I don't know what you think, but I know that God is speaking to me, and he may well be speaking to us as a church. It's a remarkably frenetic 
uh, season in the life of our church. This morning we laid hands on a team of, I don't know, 30 or so adults, who, uh, plus their kids, who are going off to start City Church Northwest. Uh, they're going to have a dry run next week and then the kind of public launch the week after that. At the same time as that, in two weeks' time, we're relaunching Gilt Park, this site here. And we're really excited about just kind of having a reboot and a fresh start for us as a little family here. At the same time as that, we're starting all these alpha courses left, right, and center. We're starting mainly music in different places. It's a remarkably busy and intense time for us as a church. And the danger is that amongst all of that activity, actually our relationships with the Lord are about a mile wide and half an inch thick. And if I know that God's saying anything to me, and perhaps to us as a church, it's that we have to go deeper with God. We have to find ourselves in a position where we're in a sustained, what did he say? Uh, a sustained, permanent immersion in the deep end. He's calling us to seek him for more, for more of his presence, more of his voice, more of his grace, more of his power in our lives. Uh, we've had a whole bunch of people become Christians in the life of our church recently. Somebody became a Christian this morning in the life of our church. It was just wonderful. We could have a whoop or something like that for that. Uh, yeah, there you go. It's really exciting. And it is, you know, it's been brilliant. But I, I, was, I was speaking to a guy this week who'd become a Christian two weeks ago tomorrow. And uh, just speaking to him a little bit about uh, how has it been, you know, being a Christian. And, and he said, well, I just, I just keep crying all the time. And I was like, oh, dear, that's not necessarily the, the look we were going for. And he said, no, no, I've just been so happy. It's not sad tears, it's happy tears. And then he was saying, I'm just finding it so difficult to sleep at night. And I was like, oh, dear, that's not great. I just, no, no, I'm just so excited. I'm just so excited to be a Christian, to be a child of God. And it just got me thinking, you know, for so many of us who've been Christians for years and years and years, and, and perhaps, you know, way back, whenever we decided to follow Jesus, it was such an adventure and was so exciting and filled us with so much joy. And the danger is that we come to a place of kind of diminishing returns, where over time we expect less and less from our relationship with the Lord. But what if he's calling us to more? What if there could be a sudden inbreak of the kingdom of God into our lives in a fresh way? Uh, so we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3. In fact, we're going to do a series called More on and off over this term. But just to give a bit of background to the bit we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about everything we've already got in Christ. You know, we are rich in Christ already and so he talks about all kinds of things like we're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ he says we're chosen uh, we've been made holy and blameless in his sight we're forgiven we're redeemed we're given new purpose we're adopted we're marked with a seal which is the promised Holy Spirit we're guaranteed an inheritance and all of this to, to the praise of his glory. It's, it's an amazing kind of 12 or 13 verses in Ephesians chapter 1. And in one sense you could stop there and you could just say, do you know, why don't I just stop and enjoy the fact that God has done all these things for me. I have so much in Christ. I could just, you know, be lost in wonder and love and praise for the rest of my life. We could do a teaching series that would last for all eternity. Uh, it's tempting, but... Uh, you know, just on those few verses. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with what we already have in Christ. He goes on to talk about what we may have in Christ, what we could have. 
if only we sought more of God. And some of you will now uh, be feeling slightly apprehensive or nervous in the sense that you may be thinking, are we, are we erring towards Gnosticism here? Are we erring towards a place of elitism where some people have got the more and some people haven't? And I don't think that Paul is um, undermining the power of the gospel or the power of the cross. I think what he's doing is mining the riches of the cross and the gospel. I don't think he's trying to graduate from the cross or the, you know, from everything that the cross achieved. I think that he's trying to say to us, look, we have to press in and receive everything that the cross paid for. And so the theologians say that Paul has a double perspective in the book of Ephesians. He's, he has this perspective of what we already have in Christ on the one hand, but also what we may have in Christ. And uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, two, he's already saying, I'm praying that you'll have even more. Uh, and in Ephesians chapter three, he's praying again. And we're going to look at that prayer now. In particular, he's praying about love. I pray that you would really, really know God's love. So let's just look at that. Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. And it's going to come up on the screen as well, I believe. God's intent his intention was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to, all, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so at the end of the service, what I'd love us to do is to wait on God and to, to just ask him to fill us with his love, that, that we would know in a profound and just such a deep way, in a real way, how dearly loved we are and, and how much he delights in us. I'd love us to do that. But, but what I want to do very briefly tonight, and maybe not as briefly as you're hoping for, is to, uh, to look at why. Why would we want to know? Why would, why would we want to, to kind of seek after a great un greater understanding and a greater experience of the love of God? And the first uh, point, in a sense is that a greater grasp and experience of the love of God is exceptionally important. Is that, is that, oh look at there, there you go, exceptionally important. 
This letter is written to the Ephesian church, and the theologians think that probably it was a kind of a circular letter. So it's for the Ephesians, but it was also for all the other churches in that region. And they were going to kind of, you know, read it out aloud in the church community and then pass it on to everyone else. The question is, what was it like to be a Christian? What kind of a, a church was he writing to? What was their experience of following Jesus? And probably the way to find that out is to flip back a few pages in the New Testament to Acts chapter 19. Because in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul himself, who's written this letter, visits Ephesus himself. And uh, so the first thing is he goes into the synagogue, he goes to his own people, and he starts to tell them what he's experienced, you know, the resurrected Jesus. And not only do they reject his message, but they also reject him. And in fact, what they do is they trash his reputation, which is never pleasant, is it? I don't know whether you've ever had your reputation just trashed. And so then he goes to another place, the the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he starts to preach the gospel there. And amazingly, as he preaches the gospel and also demonstrates the gospel with all kinds of miracles and healings and all that kind of stuff, amazingly, loads of people come to faith. They come to know Jesus. And uh, as a result of that, the next thing that happens is they all start bringing the... um, the paraphernalia of their past lives and they bring them and they set fire to them as a way of symbolizing you know I just don't want anything to do with that past life again and the authorities aren't delighted with that to say the least uh, particularly the people who produced all the paraphernalia of their past lives who have got a living to keep up and so there's a riot and in fact what actually happens in the end is that Paul and his friends have to flee the city in fear of their lives I, I, I don't know about you, but I can't really read that kind of stuff anymore without thinking about what's happening in Iraq right now, in northern Iraq, where, where hundreds of thousands of Christians are just fleeing for their lives, and those who get left behind are beheaded or stoned to death. It's just horrendous. And so what we know of, of the, you know, uh, the church, as Paul is writing to it, is that all across that part of the world at that particular time, it was a very turbulent time and a very turbulent place to be a Christian. In fact, in verse 13, you can see uh, he's hinting at the fact that he's writing this letter in chains. It says, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. And so what does Paul pray? What do you pray for someone who is in, uh, you know, what you would describe as just a, a... extreme turbulence you know when their life is painful and there's oppression and persecution and suffering what do you pray for people like that well does he pray for example lord please make that stop you know please make that stop all of that oppression and persecution or do, i mean the answer is of course of course he does any human being would pray something like that. Does he pray, Lord, please would you just scoop into Ephesus and just scoop up my brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution and just put them into another place? Of course he prays stuff like that, but that, neither of those two prayers are the prayers that we have recorded in this book. Because what he actually prays is, in verse 17, he prays that they would be rooted and established in love. And then in verse 18, that they would grasp the sheer enormity and scale of God's love. And then in verse 19, he prays that they would be filled to all the measure of God, which is quite a lot, with the love of God. 
So in other words, when life is really hard and painful and, you know, as Matt Redman's song goes, the road is marked with suffering and there's pain in the offering, what we really need to know is that God is for us and that he's with us and that he loves us unconditionally and consistently and in a way that never fails. We need to know God's love because it's extraordinarily important for times of pain. That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, we need to know God's love. We need to experience God's love because it does something deep on the inside of us. It's an inside job. Where does Paul pray that God's love reaches all the way into? It says, verse 16, in your inner being. That's kind of, yeah, right in the middle. I've been thinking a lot about how busy I am and how busy we are as a church. And, and do you know, Christian busyness is a dangerous thing. Because if we're really busy, what happens is our focus becomes all the stuff that I'm doing for God. And actually we lose sight of the fact that God is looking for more than just human doings. You know, the danger is that we, you know, like an iceberg, an iceberg, uh, you can just see a tiny part of it and all the rest of it is hidden and secret. The danger is that our Christian lives become exactly the reverse of that, so that there's nothing that's hidden or secret and everything that's, you know, the part of us that is a Christian is on full display. Simon Ponsonby in his amazing book says this, sadly, we have often replaced love with law intimacy with theology, delight in God with duty to God, and being found with God with being sound about God. And the point is, of course, that Jesus didn't create us and neither did he rescue us because he had a few jobs he needed doing around the house. You know, God, God isn't primarily interested in what we do for him. He can manage perfectly well without us. He created us for intimacy with him to be united with him, to walk with him in the cool of the day, to be in communion with him. And you can see, actually, right the way throughout the Old Testament, there's this kind of tragic cry from the heart of God, saying, I just want you. I don't just want what you do. I want you. So, for example, just think about uh, Genesis chapter 3, when, when, when uh, Adam and Eve have turned their backs on God, God's cry comes out into the garden. Where are you? Or Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, where God says this, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, and yet my people have forgotten me. I had a birthday recently, and uh, thanks for all the cards and all of that. I... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't get a card from you. Uh, uh, but a couple of days after my birthday, I got this great big cardboard box. And um, it, it was on the side of it, it was written Amazon. Uh, does anyone else get a little kind of rush of, you know, joy when you get something like that delivered? And I had no idea what was in it. And I thought, oh, someone's bought me a present. You know, and, and I, I could feel myself getting really excited as I was kind of scrabbling around in the kitchen drawer for something to hack open this box. And, uh, you, you know, this kind of endorphins or whatever it's called going off in my brain. I got to the box, I attacked the box, I opened up the box, inside the box, bin bags. 
And that was a really crushing disappointment. But isn't it frightening the things that we derive joy and peace and satisfaction from? We weren't created to derive joy and peace and satisfaction from Amazon. We were created to walk with God in intimacy with God and for him to do something in our inner being. Jonathan Edwards, who is an amazing theologian and, and preacher in the 18th century in America, he had a wife called Sarah, and Sarah wrote in her journal about a moment uh, one night where she, where she had a profound experience of the presence of God, and she was pinned to her bed by the presence of God. She was unable to move, she was unable to speak, and she was unable to sleep for the whole night. And listen to what she wrote. It was the sweetest night I ever had in my life. All night I continued in a constant, clear, and lively sense of the heavenly sweetness of Christ's excellent love, or his nearness and dearness to me, and my dearness to him. I seemed to, to myself to perceive a glow of divine love came down from the heart of Christ. Now the question is, what was the fruit of that? What difference did that make to her life? And the answer is that she'd been someone who'd uh, been plagued. She'd suffered with severe depression for most of her life. And after that one encounter with God, she was completely healed and she walked in total freedom. The psalmist says, Psalm 42 verse 1, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And the only thing that will quench the thirst that we have in our inner being is the love of God. That's the second thing. And it's an inside job. Thirdly, the love of God is life-giving. When I was a kid, we had a garden, uh, and at, towards the end of the garden was a shed. That's probably not much news. Probably most of us had that, but not all of us, maybe. Uh, anyway, beyond the shed was rhubarb you know, a, a full-on rhubarb plant. And this rhubarb plant was properly out of control. You know, there was, it, it, most of the time it was pushing over the shed. And so my dad, every few months, would go out into the garden with knives and axes and saws and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, he'd hack away at this rhubarb and then he'd come back barely able to carry the rhubarb and then we'd eat rhubarb for every mealtime, you know, for about three months. And then he'd go back out into the garden again and hack away at this thing. Uh, and uh, he, there were various times when he even tried like digging it out by the roots and stuff like that. It made absolutely no difference. There was always rhubarb pushing over the shed. And anyway, he met this guy in the pub who was some sort of uh, horticultural ex expert. And he said, listen, you, you want to see this rhubarb because I've tried to kill this rhubarb and it just will never die. Uh, and so the guy came around and he did all kinds of experiments and stuff like that. And he said... You're gripped by this, aren't you? I can tell that. He said... Sorry, <laughs> the suspense is just fun, sorry. Uh, he, he said, oh, the, the interesting thing is that, that the interesting thing is not your rhubarb. He said, what's amazing about your rhubarb is the soil it's planted into. And he said, anything you put in that soil will grow like that rhubarb. The point is... The Apostle Paul says, I pray that you would be rooted in love. It's an agricultural metaphor. 
And probably, even though it's a very short little, sent, little phrase there, rooted in love, probably he's uh, trying to conjure up all of the pictures in the Old Testament where you, uh, it's kind of a repeat picture that appears again and again in the prophets in particular of God's people as being like a tree that's planted by a stream or a river. For example, Jeremiah 17. He's talking about his people. He says, They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The point is, if we want to be people whose leaves are always green and who never fail to bear fruit, then we have to put our roots down into the love of God. So it's life-giving. Also, it's foundational. If rooted is an agricultural metaphor, then he says rooted and established. And and the word established is an architectural metaphor. Uh, It's kind of to do with foundations. We are, uh, hopefully if you're, you've been around this church for a while, you'll know that just in the garden immediately behind this wall, we're about to build an office annex. Uh, and uh, we're really excited about that. The staff team are really excited because we're all sitting on each other's laps at the moment. But also we probably haven't talked about this very much, but we're going to have a permanent prayer space in the building that's accessible from the outside by a code or something like that. And it'll be sealed off from the rest of the building. Uh, so that means that people will be able to sign up on our website or something like that. Don't, you know, hold me to the details of this. But they'll be able to go along at different times of day or night, whenever they feel like they need to, and just come and have a pray in our building, which we're really excited about. And also there's going to be a lift. Just where that uh, hello is there, there's going to be a, a doorway, and it's going to go into a lift, and we're going to be able to get to all parts of the building, even if we're in a wheelchair and stuff like that, which is desperately needed. Anyway... Uh, the reason why we're talking about that now is because how weird would it be? They're about to start building in the next couple of weeks. Oh, by the way, if you're a gardener and you want any of the shrubs or plants in our garden, take them now because in a week the diggers are going to come in and dig it all up. Anyway, imagine when they come in, uh, if they just started like putting out bricks on the grass, you know, like just laying the bricks on the grass and then putting the roof on top, we'd be like, this building is not going to be here very long if you just put it on the grass. Or imagine if they built the whole building, right? And then they said, yeah, we're just doing the finishing touches now. We're going to put the foundations in. You know, if we could just, sque- we're just going to s- try and squeeze them underneath the building now. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Paul says, you've got to be, I'm praying that you'll be established in love. In other words, that you'll build your whole life and your job and your sense of call and your ministry and all of your uh, uh, relationship with the Lord. You'll build the whole lot. Everything that goes towards making up you, you'll build it all on the love of God. That before you know anything else, you know that you're loved, deeply and profoundly loved. I remember the first time I ever spoke in public. It was at my baptism and I gave my testimony in front of the whole church. And uh, Everybody was surprised, and I was definitely surprised that it wasn't a total car accident, you know, a car crash. It, it actually went all right. And people started coming up saying, 
that was all right. And I was like, I know, it was all right. It was amazing. Uh, and uh, uh, pretty much, you know, soon after that, I decided that, that, God, if you ever want me to do anything like that, I'll do it again. And sure enough, my youth group said, would I come and do a little talk for them? And so I did a couple of talks for my youth group. And then uh, after about two years of doing stuff like that, the, um, the ch- it was a Baptist church and they were having a members meeting and I think it was going to be a turbulent members meeting and so they wanted to have a little devotional before the members meeting and they asked me to do it and so I prepared a little something on the train to work that day and then I came along and I did my little devotional and nobody said a word you know like no one said oh that was really great or you know oh that really impacted me no one said anything literally nothing and uh, I was like oh dear this is interesting and I asked the pastor afterwards I said you know, a bit of feedback, and he said, uh, you better come into my office, and he took me into the office, and these are the exact words he said, he said, Chuck, that was all right, and he said them in such a way as to make me believe that it really wasn't all right, and I was absolutely devastated, because I'd built this whole thing on just people admiring me and approving of me and, and, and such a big part of my sense of self was built on just being liked. The Apostle Paul says, I pray that you would be established in love. That you would build your whole life, everything that you ha- your sense of self on the fact that you're loved unconditionally before you ever do a single thing. It's foundational. Uh, Almost, finally, a greater grasp and and experience of God's love is for everyone. And I'm getting that from verse 18, where he prays that, he says, together with all the Lord's people, and often I think it's helpful to underline the word all, because it's amazing how easily we count ourselves out of the promises of God. God's love is for everyone regardless of how you feel and in a group of people this size there'll be some of us who feel distinctly unlovable or unlovely and who struggle to believe that God loves them that actually God loves other people but he kind of tolerates me but all of that is an absolute lie Because the truth that comes again and again in Scripture is that he delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord, your God, is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Or Psalm 18 He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God's love is for all of us regardless of how we feel. It's also for all of us regardless of how we think. Uh, Years ago, me and my friend Paul Davey, who used to be one of the pastors here, we went to a conference in Northern Ireland. And uh, it, was, uh, it was at a church, and it was for church leaders, this conference. And so what they uh, did is they, they set up this thing called a prophetic clinic. 
where you could sign up for a little slot and you'd go into a room and there'd be a bunch of people there who uh, had a kind of a prophetic gifting and a wild look in their eye uh, and, and you could go in there and, and they would kind of uh, try and hear God for you. And me and my mate Paul were like, we're definitely signing up for that. And I think we were the first two names on the list. Anyway, Paul goes in and I'm waiting in the kind of waiting area and he comes out and he's like, oh, it was amazing. You know, it was as if they'd hacked into my emails. It was as if they'd been reading my journal. It was like they knew everything about me and they, and they were so encouraging and they were telling me all these things that are going to happen and they were saying to me, oh, you know, keep going and, and all of this. And he, he was just beaming. And so, of course, my sense of expectation went through the roof. You know, I was like, come on, God, I'm ready for this. So I went into the room, you know, I sat down and, I, you know, and, uh, and then there was a little moment of silence and then somebody spoke and they said, I just feel like the Lord wants you to know, Chuck, that he really loves you. And then somebody else said, you know, God delights in you. And then somebody else said, he's your father and he's so proud of you. And all these kind of things, it just went on like that. And I went out of the room, I was absolutely furious. You know, I was like, did I look especially insecure on that day? You know, there's me walking in. You know, did they look at me and think, there's someone who just needs a little bit of an encouragement? You know, I was so cross. And it was like the Lord just whispered into my ear, so you don't want to know that I love you then. So I had to repent. God's love is profoundly important for us. E even if we think that it isn't. It's also regardless of personality type. Um, we, we had this staff day, church staff day, uh, I don't know, three or four years ago, and we had an expert in Myers-Briggs personality tests come in. Have you, hands up if you've come across that stuff. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. You know, I, I mean, you wouldn't want to kind of swallow it all hook, line and sinker but it was really interesting you know uh, I often wondered why uh, whenever we had a little you know bit of cake and a cup of tea as a church staff team some people as soon as they'd finished their cake they were marching into the kitchen and washing up and I was like just chill out you know we could do the washing up later on and then it turned out that some people have that personality type I was gonna say personality disorder anyway uh, you know that they just have to get things done and then they can relax and other people are like you know oh I can re I'll relax now I'll do that later later hands up if you're like that later later yeah me too yeah anyway anyway the point is that regardless of your personality type you need to know that God loves you you know if you're a touchy-feely pastoral you know people person you're sensitive you're loving you're kind you're gentle you need to know that God loves you. If you're logical, mathematical, uh, you know, you think in black and white and straight lines and all of that, you still need to know that God loves you. Even if you, most of the, the time you're like a walking head, you know, you still need to know the love of God. And in fact, if I could go further than that, for those of us who are like that, and I probably would include myself, in verse 19, he, taught, he says, this kind of love surpasses knowledge in other words you can't just experience this knowledge with rational thought you can't just uh, examine it in a test tube if you like you, it's something that takes over your whole body you, you know in your soul not just your intellect and lastly we need to know God's love 
in a way that isn't really finished until we're completely full. That's what it says in verse 19. He prays that they would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Charles Finney, who is an amazing evangelist in the early 19th century, he, before he was an evangelist, he was working as a lawyer. And as he was sat at his desk in his uh, law firm, he met God. He had a very profound experience of God at his desk. And he said it was like waves and waves of liquid love. And, and uh, he said this, No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. But the thing I love most about his story is that having had that encounter with God, it came to the, degree, to, to the point where he had to ask the Lord to stop filling him with waves and waves of liquid love. He said this, Lord, I can't bear it anymore. I don't know about you, but I haven't had an experience of God's love like that. That comes to the point where I think I might die if he puts any more in. Let me just finish with this. Um, Walt Disney hired a lady called Thelma Pearl Howard in the 1950s to be his housekeeper and nanny to his children. And uh, every Christmas and birthday, he would give her a little gift to say thank you for all of her hard work. And it was a little envelope, and he'd just give it to her, and he'd say, now listen, you put that in a safe place, that'll be useful one day. And so she'd take these envelopes, and she'd take them into her bedroom, and she'd put them in her bottom drawer. Fast forward to 1994, when she died at the age of 79. And uh, the executors of her will were going through her stuff. She'd been living in a very small apartment uh, on a Disney pension with her disabled son. And the executors of her will came to kind of come along and clear out the apartment. And they came across this bottom drawer, which was stuffed full of envelopes. And so they took out all these envelopes and they began to open them. And it was Walt Disney stock. It was stock in the Walt Disney Corporation. And when they added it all up, she had died being worth more than $10 million. And she had no idea. The tragedy for so many of us is that we are deeply and profoundly loved, and yet we don't really know it. And how would it change our lives? How would it transform our lives if we realized the richness that is already ours, the love that is already ours, that we could never earn or pay for. But it's just unconditionally for us. Let's stand to it.